We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good prayer, dude. Nice prayer. Hey, thanks. Solid prayer. You must have prayed before. This isn't your first rodeo. I can tell. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm sort of a pro. Literally, people pay me to pray. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you did go pro, didn't you? I did. Not even semi-pro. I went all the way pro. (laughs) Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Speaking of semi-pro, um, so I, I was kind of disappointed that Duke lost, actually, because I was hoping to see Zion in the finals, or whatever yeah. you call it, in, the, in college the championship. He's just going to do one year in college, I assume, though, right? He's not coming oh, yeah. back. Yeah, yeah there's two better. Although I did Dude. watch the highlights of the... That's the only part of the tournament I've really watched, is I watched the highlights of the Michigan State game where they beat Duke, and it was looked like a really good game. Did you watch it? Yeah. The only the only uh, parts of the tournament I've watched due to Exodus and I've become just a total uh, consumer fan is only Zion Williamson highlights yep. <laughs> of the tournament. Okay, because it's insane, dude. He, he is honestly, he's like life-changing to watch play basketball. Yeah. I don't know how else to describe it. <laughs> and he's, what, 19, 18, 19 years old? Yeah, y'all, he's 300 pounds. He's almost 300 pounds. We shouldn't be too uh, over the top because he is here with us as a silent guest right now. We don't want to flatter him, make him embarrassed. Right, yeah. right. So, thank you for joining us, Ian, by the way. Mm-hmm. Thanks for yeah. being here. Mm-hmm. I know yeah. it's a Sorry tough, loss, I- tough loss the other day. Tough yeah. loss. You can put your hand down. I'm not going to call on you. Just don't worry. <laughs> yeah, you know what I realized is... Um, like what makes it so insane to watch him play is it it reminded me i was thinking about it of your own it reminded me of the first time i what's that reminded me of myself (laughs) when i when i was a kid i remember playing for duke jumping (laughs) 10 feet in the air nearly hitting my head on the backboard yeah um no it did remind me of the first time i saw have y'all ever seen a c-17 it's no. a big, it's an airplane. Oh, okay. Is it like a troop okay. transport? Yeah, it's a troop transport slash whatever you want to transport. Just they big. can literally yeah. parachute tanks. You can transport other planes I'd, in it. Probably, honestly. <laughs> the C-17, they drop tanks out of it. So, it's, I mean, it's absolutely ginormous. It looks like they took a skyscraper and put it on its side and then just fashioned wings to it. Okay. <laughs> It looks like a flying building. And I remember the first time seeing one, like, just right in front of me. We had to jump out of them. And you're looking at it, and you're like, there's just no way this thing is going to fly. Like, I see where you're going with this. It's a building. It's literally <laughs> a building that we strapped wings to. And then, sure enough, here it goes. It just takes off. And that's what it's like watching Zion Williamson. <laughs> like, there is... No way that thing can do that. And then, <laughs> they, sure enough, there it goes. Just a building 
flying around in, in the sky. What I also it's, like about him is that he looks like he's having a lot of fun and he's also competing really hard. Like he's yeah. not mm-hmm. taking any possessions off, strapping the team to his back, but not in a ball hog way. I don't want to talk bad about Kobe, but I was that's what always bothered me about watching Kobe was it just felt like all right, I'm gonna do gonna do this by myself. It doesn't feel like Zion wants to do that when you watch him. It's just like if his team is down by a couple points and he just needs to get points, he's like, all right, I'm just going to smash and grab and get to the bucket and just throw it down hard and embarrass everyone around me. But it's not even like well, those highlights you sent the other day, Mets, whatever text that was. I don't know what game that was. But it's not even the ridiculous dunks that he has. But there was one of his highlights, and it was just like he had it at the top of the key. And again, like, what is he, 6'8", 300 pounds, and just dribbled by a guy. Mm-hmm, and he yeah. did like an old school jump stop and like just ended up right by the rim. And I think he might have slammed it, actually. But it was just like, you're exactly right. Uh, yeah, his size, it's just like the power that's there should not be able to move like that. I've never, I've, I don't know, I don't, I'm not a basketball expert. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, I don't think anybody really This has. is right in our wheelhouse, actually, to have this uh, be what we talk about because we don't have any, none of us have, well, Mike, you played college ball, but this is a very poorly researched topic and carelessly selected. This is- Dude, I don't know. I've spent a lot of time watching Zion Williams <laughs> um, basketball exclusively on YouTube. Uh with various clips of just it, him here, here's making... How, here's how we can really get into it here. But have you guys ever read the book uh, Making Sense Out of Suffering by Peter Kreeft? No. no. I've been feeling like I need to get super, more into Kreeft. I'm Dude. super excited ab- about where this just turned. Well, I'm, I really want to see how we can incorporate Zion Williamson and... Making Sense Out of Suffering? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it, man. Yeah, Let's only- do it. Uh, see, <laughs> this is carelessly selected, but this is where only three dogs north, dogs north could go here. All right, so we're gonna make sense out of suffering. We're angels fear to tread. Hmm. Um. Well, it's one I read it. I think when I was working for Focus, it's an outstanding book, and it's just like kind of his reflections on it. So I'm I'm maybe like a quarter of the way through it. Um. Again, and it's just very honest, and he writes a lot of it like in dialogue as well kind of like a um you know uh, platonic dialogue or something like that and so it's just very readable it's kind of one of those books that you read it and it's like oh that's the question that i'm trying to ask that he's actually asking it better and like producing even more kind of nuances and complexities that i hadn't thought about and then here's like a really beautiful way to kind of like enter into like the mystery of it because he's just adamant of like you don't answer suffering. It's not a question to be answered and all that stuff. But um, the guy who wrote the foreword to it is Sheldon Vanaken or whatever his name is, who wrote yeah, a severe yeah. And he just talks about in it. And I think that he, this book was like written in the eighties or something, but he talks all about how, like, even at that point um, there was like, he talks about how many experts there are in the world. And he just, he says like, have you ever noticed how often experts disagree? Oh, you guys got me. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Sorry. I said the connection was lost there. Um, but he, he's, so he's saying like, we always look to experts and 
like to try to get questions answered, but they continually disagree. Whereas you need like an actual kind of in the biblical definition, a wise person to guide you into this stuff. So how that related Zion Williamson is guiding us into the mystery of what basketball can look like. Your <laughs> wow. guides us into <laughs> how we understand suffering as Catholics and as Christians, anyway. So, and as human beings. But anyway, it is a fantastic, seriously, a fantastic book. Nice, dude. Yeah, dang, dude. That just that line that you said, um, related to actually a book summary I had to do for uh, Father DeGaulle's class by an author, his name is Alexander Schmemann, and he's an Eastern theologian. It's the it's the book that I want to get you, Connor. I want to actually, well, I'd like to buy it for both of y'all um, and just have a read through it and just see what oh, y'all's well. thoughts are. It's called For the Life of the World, and it's by this guy, Alexander Schmemann, who is that an name Eastern... That is awesome, by the way. That is a great that sounds name. sounds so made up. Alexander, Alexander I don't Schmemann. know. Schmemann, yeah. maybe? Schmemann, it's... it's it's spelled ridiculously too. It's like S C H M E M M A N or something. It's just, yeah. It, but he's one of the guys who massively influenced Dr. David Fagerberg, the professor over at Notre Dame, who came and gave us one of the lectures and is one of the premier liturgical theologians. Are you talking about my co lecturer at the Young uh, Adult Liturgy <laughs> Conference in July? Oh, that is. Is you exactly my colleague, or, and you mean our colleague? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Holy smokes! Um, but in one of the chapters, Schmemann. Well, the the entire book, I, can't I think, take is that name. I'm sorry, that name sounds made up. Schmemann. Yeah, <laughs> dude, it's real. Oh, it's real. All right. Um, I I think a lot of the book is working on bridging the the great divide the gap between um this uh this massive split where we like to categorize things as simply sacred or profane and everything that's not sacred needs to bug off and get away and everything that is uh sacred we want to we want to take in and exclusively exclusively use and and be with but the the whole context of the book is um, he uses meal language to to talk about these distinctions and divisions. He says man is what he eats, and oftentimes we see uh, today in the world either man sits through a meal and can't enjoy it, uh, where even a meal, which is meant to be an experience of communion, where it becomes an exercise in patience and piety, because he's rejected the world, so the meal is simply a temptation and a pain that's meant to be born instead of something that's meant to be enjoyed. Or you have the guy who is who is the worldly man, who we have now glorified, and he eats fancy meals, and he's the one who is uh, leading the progressive movement uh, where he's showing man how to really dine and how to really be fancy and get things done and He's super cultured, and we've tried to kind of baptize him and, and worship this, what he calls the dining man, where he says, but the real balance is that Christ came down and, and took this meal into himself, and so in and through Christ, we can actually experience and receive creation as the gift that God desires for it to be, where we don't, uh, 
yeah, we don't worship the dining man and we don't reject the meal, but that we get to enjoy it exactly for what it is, the way that God God gives it to us. But one of the chapters that he writes talks about the problem um, the problem that the world has with with death specifically, and I think it's actually a lot about suffering as well, where you either have this group that um, that denies the reality of death so much so that they actually beautify corpses and try to uh, try to overlook the deadness of the corpse is what he says. Hmm. Or then you have the group that obsesses about death where the world is so awful and I just can't wait until I die and then I can get out of this wretched profane place so that I can be in this sacred place. But he says, um, and this is what relate related to the line that you said that suffering is not, um, is not a question that's really meant to be answered. And he says the same thing about death, that the big problem with that Christians fall into is they try to reconcile the world with death or try to reconcile themselves with death. That it's like, it's, it's a problem that's meant to be explained. And he's like, no, 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 no. What Christ revealed to us is that he is life, which means death is the enemy. Death is meant to be destroyed. And suffering therefore it's not meant to be explained away but that it's meant to be actually transformative and transformed in death into life like with death with christ that it's transformed into life and i think the same actually applies with suffering that it's not like you don't have to try and reconcile suffering in your life but the task is to allow christ to be with you in suffering and therefore transforming it and in a sense defeating it like through through its through its very self that death actually becomes the the vehicle of our salvation death becomes a vehicle of life that suffering is what transforms us into martyrs which are witnesses of relationship with Christ of the presence of Christ and like I it, it resonated deeply with me because it, I constantly try to explain these things away. And he's like, no, these are mysteries that are meant to be explained, but that they're meant to be um, experienced with the reality that Christ has come and taken all things into himself, which means that everything has already been like incorporated into, yeah, this the body of Christ that's sitting at the right hand of the Father that we share in as the church. Um which is which is much more difficult, and Connor, this is where it gets to your talk that you gave to the seminarians, which is much more difficult as a priest to say that when people come in and are working through suffering, or even ourselves, because the, the priest isn't meant to be quote-unquote helpful and to give good counsel or wisdom or advice. Well, I guess wisdom, yeah. But we're not meant to be therapists, but that we're meant to embody Christ the priest who didn't reconcile death he suffered and died and defeated death so it's not something that's that we just explain away which would be much easier you know but we're not therapists we're not counselors we're priests who reveal the priesthood of the of the laity to themselves so that they can also enter into suffering well instead of trying it and explain it away and I mean, that's kind of the gist of, of at least that chapter, but man, I fall, in, I fall into that trap a lot. Relax. 
I thinking I'm thinking of this question of suffering and um, both of your guys' things. I keep thinking of did, did we talked about the U diagram at all from uh, this other podcast, the place we find ourselves? Did I talk to you guys about that? No, I, nope. He's talking about. Remember, I brought this up at the Seek conference with the whole idea of hope, which also is kind of um, in line with what we're talking about here. Where yeah, I do remember that. Where you just kind of like hedge your bets on hope because you think, um, well, I can't understand it. God's sovereign. I just have to accept it, even though it seems like meaningless suffering. Or, um, or like I'll be happy in heaven, like you said, Mike. Someday, God doesn't. He's not going to fulfill all my desires here in this earth. And, um, but the U diagram is all about the mystery of the resurrection, and um how he he asked the question do you believe in resurrection not just the resurrection but actual resurrection and what he's talking about is like the dynamic of the paschal mystery at work in our lives uh, on a regular basis like what paul talks about with baptism that if you die with christ you actually actually will rise and somehow the 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 foretaste of that mystery, even before it is fully fulfilled in heaven or at Jesus' second coming, the final judgment, the renewed heavens and earth, like there's something of that resurrection happening already, you know, like, well, you see it all through the miracles and the gospels and the acts of the apostles, people being reborn and um, sometimes miraculously like being physically healed, but more importantly, inner healing and inner repentance and uh, change of life. Uh, that's all the in Romans, like the power of the gospel. Um, so the U diagram is the Paschal mystery of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. And you start on Friday, up, <clears throat> and it's it's literally like a U, like the letter U, where you're you're kind of tracking on this line, um, and then it goes dips down into Holy Saturday, which is the descent into hell and the the silence of the death of Christ where everything is chaos. Nothing is okay. Nothing's going to be okay. Nobody knows about the resurrection yet. Um, it's just the whole world has come to an end basically. And then whole, uh, Easter Sunday is the resurrection. And that's when we experience um, this new life, um, which is always three things. He says a gift, a surprise, and uniquely, how does he put it? Uniquely kind of tailored to your heart. Um, so even in the resurrection accounts, he doesn't talk about this, but this has always occurred to me. I can't remember where I first read about it. But that the resurrection accounts are kind of the strangest part of the Gospels because they're all sort of different. And if you try to line them up, like you might line up the Sermon on the Plain with the Sermon on the Mount or you know, the woman with the hemorrhage um, in Mark versus the woman with the hemorrhage in Luke. Like those stories are, they might differ in a few details, but they are basically the same. But the resurrection accounts are all just wackadoo. Like sometimes it's Mary Magdalene at the tomb crying. Sometimes it's Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee telling him like catch the fish on the right side of the boat. And if you try to line it up historically, it would be really tough because in some ways after the resurrection, the divinity of Jesus is unleashed and now he's, He's able in his divinity to to address just as God is and God knows everything and is omnipresent. He can address every human heart 
um, individually, you know, at, at its deepest level, deepest core self. And so it's each of these encounters is sort of tailor made for Mary Magdalene or the apostle or the disciples on the way to Emmaus or Peter on the beach. And um, those are all resurrection accounts for those people. You know, um, it is still a historical event, which was collectively witnessed, but but it has this individual tailor made flavor to it. Anyways, I think that that's really interesting. Um and something you talked about, Mike, a while back when I was asking about, like, what do you do when come when people come in and they just sort of lay out on the table all their suffering and all this senseless darkness in their life? And, like, they come to you as a priest and say, all right, well, tell me where God's at in all this and how do I feel better? And you feel helpless. But you said something like you're a marriage counselor. I can't remember where you heard that from, but it's a great analogy. And I've I've tried to keep it in mind. It's very tempting still to try to solve people's problems or advise them through. But sometimes people bring you something and it's like, you just have to bear witness to it and um, point them to the person who can, if it's possible to make sense of it, or, or even if it, there's no answer to the question, it's just simply um, like you have to be, have permission to get mad at God mm-hmm. um, and kind of cry out that you've abandoned me like Jesus on the cross where Again, like he says, it's not okay. Nothing is okay. And nothing's going to be okay. Like I, I don't get to skip from Friday to Sunday. I have to go to the bottom of the U into the, the darkness in order for the gift, surprise, and uniquely tailored experience of, of Christ's resurrection and what that means for me. The surprising healing that cannot be done with just like, I'm going to work through this and I'm going to you know, storyboard my, my life and figure out what the sense of this, like, it has to be just, I cannot believe I went into this dark place and came out of it alive. Um, yeah. and that's where faith and hope are tested and truly like given to us is when we go and learn the facts of grace by being willing to dip down. Now you don't just go there alone because that, that place is scary, you know, um, and if we're honest, like all of us have some some dip down into the U that we could do and we just instinctually don't go there. Like, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to think about that. Um, and that's why people come to us, I think, or anyone who they trust to offload some of these things and talk and work through some of the suffering. Like, say somebody was abused. You know, people will, will hide that away for decades and not talk about it. Um, because they think if I go there, if I let myself start crying about that, I'll never stop. You know? Mm. Um, yeah, it will consume me. It will kill me. It will kill me. I will die. So I just have to pretend like that didn't happen or, you know, just say like, well, I believe in God and God's going to make it all right. And I forgive and blah, blah, blah. Like sort of telling yourself things rather than letting yourself really like a like a child would cry to their parents like, I am in distress. Help me. Um, we learned somehow to just try to figure it out on our own or ignore the problem or just deal with it or nobody's going to be there for me. No, nothing, nobody's going to make this feel better. So I'm just going to cram it down in there. I don't know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, well, because <clears throat> two things is it's tough because in order to enter into the you, that's what you're calling it, the you moment or mm-hmm. the you point, that's like the all the way down. Right. 
yeah, you have to, um, you can't go there on your own because it's, that's, it's bad. That's like, <laughs> that's, it's actual danger right there. And, and so, yeah, that instinct I think is correct. Um, and that's why you can't go there alone because it's actually a legit scary place. Um, and so you have to trust that you're not alone. You have to trust that there actually is somebody with you. But the thing about the trust is you can't just say, no, I trust that somebody's here with me. And then like you actually do trust is you have to have had experiences that because it's relational that build that trust in order to trust to go in deeper into the you moments. Um, and so it's like it's contingent on having had experiences or at least maybe seeing those in people that you trust in order to enter into them. Um, yeah, that's just that's just one thought. And then the other thing is, like I've noticed as, yeah, as a priest, when when people do come in and do the thing that you're talking about where they just lay it all on the table, is it's like it's so tempting to to just try and uh, like explain it away like you're talking about. Just do this like, oh, no, everything will be fine. I promise you like God's there with you. He'll take care of it. Like you don't have to. Um, he's going to help you to feel better. He's going to take care of you. God's always going to provide and this will take care of itself. Like all those very comforting kind of hope filled things. Um, but the fact is that like, I can't do Jack Dilly squat about it. I I cannot actually do anything to help. I I would say like 99% of, of the situations that come in. The only thing that I can say is, um, if you continue to bring this to the Lord, like he's going to turn you into a saint because of it. And the, and that's, I guess a part of the, the marriage counselor analogy is that it's, it's not on me whatsoever. I like, I, I actually cannot do anything to help. And so I want to live in that reality as much as possible, even if it's really painful in the moment, because I want to say something hopeful to you. I want to say something that will make you feel better but at the end of the day, like, you know, my time down in Colombia, the only people who can actually help themselves get out of addiction or can actually um, grow through some of the struggles of life is the person coming back to the people that can actually help, which is the person choosing to enter into prayer and come back to the Lord who can then reveal his presence in their life, which is all they really, which is all we really want. That's all we really want. But the temptation is to, to, for me to fix the problem for me to be the problem solver, which is a huge ego boost lie. There's a huge ego boost lie. Cause I can't do, I'm not the savior, nor am I the actual person who's in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and so I can't make you, come to prayer and bring it to the Lord who is, that's the only thing that can actually, that can actually make the suffering bearable that will assure you that you're not going to die in the hardship of the cross that God has placed before you. It's not me at all. It's the person entering into relationship with Christ in prayer. And anything other than that is me getting in the way and putting me in the center. Um, yeah. 
Hmm. A lot of good. It's amazing to listen to because you've been cutting out in and out like crazy (laughs) on my internet. It's like this. It's like this beautiful reflection. It's like uh uh. And then like something really beautiful. And then anyway, <laughs> it sounds really good from this. <laughs> the parts I heard sounded great. Yeah, it's all it's all going on the on the tape. It's recording fine. So <laughs> <laughs> I assume that's what's inside this computer is tapes, right? I think so. Oh, <laughs> uh, very very heavy stuff. I was thinking also about addiction too, Mike. Um, yeah, I finally gave that talk on Gerald May's book, Addiction and Grace. Um just read through it again and kind of made powerpoints and notes and stuff about what I find are the, are the key ideas. And we've talked a lot about it, but, um, just the, the facts of grace that it's always, a it's always there and like it's present everywhere. It's always available to anyone who asks and it's always victorious. Um, he says you have to learn the facts of grace by experience, basically by going out into the desert, like the Exodus, the, the Israelites had to go out and just learn to trust again. And they act like, like junkies. Um, I mean, obviously the idolatry, the, the golden calf is just this outrageous example of it where Moses is up for 40 days, like getting the law and the tablets and like God is blessing them, separating them off to make them sacred. And in that time, they get so impatient that they're like, all right, well, we're just going to get Aaron to make this calf. But everything else, like when God gives them, they complain about the food, they're hungry. So God gives them manna from heaven. And he's like, only get enough for the day. Like, I'll, I'll keep giving it to you every day um, and take twice as much on Friday so that you have it for the Sabbath and but don't take any more. And then some people take a lot and it starts rotting, you know, they're hoarding it because they're just, they're afraid about tomorrow and they're, they're total addicts. Like at every step of the way, they won't trust the facts of grace, which can only be learned in the desert that I don't have to grasp at what is meant to be received. And that's what all addiction or idolatry is ultimately is the desire to dominate and manipulate reality to, conform to what I want or what I think I want rather than let God be God and me be me. And I'm a creature and I depend on him. And, um, what Eden, what made Eden paradise, but what makes it kind of hell for us sinners, why we need to get purified, um, of that disease of mistrust in order for Eden to even be Eden, you know, cause there's no, you don't get to own anything there. You know, it's the kingdom. God just provides for his children. But, um, gosh, that's really hard, dude. Mm-hmm. And um, you fall and then you get back up. and But, yeah, like the mystery of it is what you're talking about, Mike. Somebody comes to you and they're just, they're in the throes of meaningless suffering. You know, like the world just has has hurt them. And they don't know what to do. And that's caused them all sorts of wounds and lies that now they're believing. Um, they don't think that God's powerful enough to to make anything better. So they just kind of hedge their bets or um, or they just carve out some way to, to make themselves feel okay. Or they just give up and they say, everything's crap and I, I want to die. Um, which or they can be like a soft suicide, like like addiction. Like I've, I've just given up on health. 
Um, I'm not like Rob running half marathons. I'm just going to, you know, go out in the streets. And uh, I was listening to This American Life this week, and it was cut from a couple weeks ago, actually. It's about a, a podcast um, like ours, just kind of a DIY, two dudes. But they were both drug recovering drug addicts, and they wanted a podcast that wasn't like a self-help podcast, but just kind of a funny two guys who used to do drugs talking about what it was like doing drugs, um, kind of yeah. telling funny stories and the trouble that they got in and they called it dopey. And they had another friend who, um, was still on drugs who used to kind of appear on the show every once in a while. But, um, they talk about over like the three or four years that they did this show, it's sort of more from two bros, just kind of telling drug stories to really more like somber, serious recovery stuff. They didn't mean to have it be, in the first place. Well, anyways, not to spoil it, but, um, some pretty dramatic stuff happens where you you like, you see the, the effects of addiction and the self-destructiveness of it and how it continues to haunt these guys. Um, especially things like opioids, fentanyl and all this stuff that people are, but it'll just be like one day you're fine. And then another day you're kind of like not fine, but you're not telling anybody. And then the next day you're dead. Yeah, you know. Um, <clears throat> Remind me after the podcast to tell a story to you guys. All right. Like, well, well, I don't mean to get <laughs> I don't mean to get all serious and uh, heavy, but I think that that's there's something in there the mystery of what we actually believe. You know, like if the health and wealth gospel, I don't really know it. I never listened to Joel Osteen. I know I know some people that I like that do, but. Um, I don't know that I'd be convinced. I, I was talking to somebody who said they tried to be Protestant for a while in one of those kind of churches. And it was like this most, the most euphoric thing. Um, you know, he, he had been living a life of sin and doing things that he wasn't, you know, he did, his conscience kept convicting him that this isn't right. And here he found really cool people who were happy all the time, who accepted him for who he was, even though he wasn't like a kind of, um, normal Christian look looking guy. He had tattoos and bodybuilder and all this stuff. And, um, they accepted him that were reading the Bible. He was learning. He was, you know, but then he lost his job and things got hard and he was tempted to go back to his old life. And he couldn't be what he said. I couldn't be Ned Flanders anymore. Like I couldn't pretend everything was okay. And I felt like to go to this church, you have to be this big pasted on smile, rock music, Christian, who's just having an awesome time because Christ makes your life kick ass. And, um, he wasn't experiencing that anymore. And that's when he started to get to, to drawn into to Catholicism and some of the mysticism and the, you know, dark night of the soul, St. John of the cross, some of the hardcore monks and things. He's like, wow, these guys, the asceticism, uh, this is where it's at. There's a deeper life here. Uh, when you enter into the death, the desert, the darkness, you go down, dip down into the bottom of the U, you come out and you're like, wow, okay, now we're on another level of life. Um, not, and not in a way I think that where you feel like you arrogantly condescend to the rest of the world, kind of like how I see Plato's philosopher Kings. Like we've, we've enjoyed money and power and pleasure and honor. Now we are just about the truth and we, we can tell you all what to do. Uh, in some ways, no, it like to dip down to the bottom of the U and come back out alive you feel more in solidarity with the sinner and the outcast and the suffering person. Do you know what I mean? Like you feel more a brother of the homeless man or the guy in jail 
when you realize I'm an addict who can barely not kill myself, <laughs> you know, and it's yeah. only by the grace of God that I don't do things that hurt me. It's yeah, I agree. But man, it is really easy uh, to y- either counsel people or preach not in that reality. Totally. No. It's just really, really easy to craft some homily that pretty much says, hey, just start doing this and your life will get better. <laughs> right. Seriously. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's just what we want to be true <laughs> or, or what, you know. Um, but it's, it's really dang easy to do. Yeah, you kind of feel like people expect it or I don't know. I was reading uh, Jordan Peterson's The 12 Rules of Life. I'm just kind of slowly plugging through that while I read other things. But he's got one chapter on don't lie or at least or tell the truth or at least don't lie is one of his 12 rules. Hmm. Yeah. Don't say something you know to be untrue. <laughs> That's, I just reading it like the stories that he tells. I realize I do that constantly. And I feel like I need to maybe just have like an examination of conscience on my own truthfulness and go to confession about it because you realize you tell all sorts of white lies all the time to, you know, you think because it's kind or because it's going to soften the blow or, or because this is what people need to hear right now, even though I don't a hundred percent believe it. Uh, but he's got this rule, like when in doubt, tell the truth. Um, yeah. And whatever the consequences are, if like somebody's not going to like you and that's going to affect your career, or if somebody's going to get mad at you and that's going to make you feel bad, um, what choice do you have? Are you going to try to like manipulate reality through your cleverness your whole life to try to make things better than they actually are? Or are you just going to have the courage and the faith, honestly, to confront reality the way it is and all the suffering that's in it and just sort of say like, I'm not, I don't know a better way. I mean, this is the world God made and this is how it is, or at least how I see it. Um, and I can give some hope because, you know, I, I have been saved and, felt uh, grace at work in my life, but there are questions I don't have the answers to, you know? Yeah. I don't know. He had this great story of (laughs) early on in his marriage, he was, um, forgive me, have you guys read this book, actually? I don't want to say something you've already heard. I know. I've only listened to his lectures. I'm just assuming you haven't read it either. But. I haven't read. No, I've read. I've read. <laughs> I heard a podcast about somebody who read it. Um, <laughs> Gary, <laughs> about somebody who read it. <laughs> no. So very briefly, he was early on in his marriage, living like in a townhouse next door to somebody who was a really, really bad alcoholic. And he'd hear him occasionally, like at three in the morning, in the backyard with the dog, just slamming beers. And um, occasionally, he would run out of money. Like he'd spend every last cent he had on alcohol and then he'd come knock on his door at two three in the morning with like a toaster under his arm or a microwave and want to sell it to him Mm. and uh a couple times a couple times he just did it and was like all right fine um but his wife was just not cool with that she's like that makes me really uncomfortable that this big drunk guy is standing at our door uh wanting something from us and you you need to tell him that that's not okay. And he's like, didn't want to do that because here this guy was uh, Quebecois, French Canadian, working class of just a different culture. Um, 
and Jordan Peterson was, you know, like a grad student or, or maybe even a clinical psychologist by that time. And, you know, upwardly mobile, doing well, upper middle class. And so there was this class divide where he felt like he didn't want to make the guy feel bad or, or to come off as like this arrogant, like you disgust me, I'm judging you by your behavior thing, you know? So he would prefer just not to address the the problem, but he had had this conversion early on in his life that he was just going to tell the truth to people. Mm. Um, and so the next time the guy comes over, it's like four in the morning, he's got a toaster and he wants some money. And Peterson just says, uh, he had, he had rehearsed it in his head. So he said exactly what he meant, but it was something along the lines of, um, you know, I think you have a, you have a drinking problem and I can't in good conscience give you money that I know you're going to go spend on alcohol. Um, and you, when you come over here late at night, drunk like this, it makes my wife really nervous. And he knew the guy knew his wife and they, he, they had a good friendship actually when the guy was sober. And he said, the guy stared at him for like 15 seconds. Like he could just feel him scanning him for any sort of arrogance or condescension or like relish or judgment that, you know, I'm better than you and you just need to get off my lawn. Like he saw that he was, he respected him enough to tell him how it actually was. And the guy walked away and he actually remembered the interaction, even though he was blind drunk and never came back and did that again. Like he, he respected his wishes and he just, he just had to name like, here's, here are the facts of the case, you know, as it is. And I know for my part, I have a really hard time doing that um, in situations like that or in any situation, telling people what's really going on or how I really see it. And yeah, preaching, how easy, how many times have I done this? I, I, I try to avoid it. I must say, I, I do try never to say anything I don't believe, but. Oh yeah, for uh, sure. But I see how that's very tempting to just go along to get along. Uh, mm -hmm. and do what people expect you to do or say what people expect you to say. It reminds me of that story because there is something like just that notion of like just telling the truth basically like that and what that would mean, you know. And again, it's not like I'm not saying that we lie intentionally all the time, but just having like a certain clarity of speech or something like that, that like what that would do. And I think how people respond to that or are ready for it. Um and I remember that story. You told this like a couple of years ago, I think on the podcast, Bisque, of it was like the young gal who was discerning religious orders and she kept going to these different convents that was like over and over. They were just saying how good of a life choice this was, et cetera. Oh, yeah. And then finally the one superior got up there and was like, I offer you nothing, but what was it? Like Christ, Jesus? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the cross to carry or something. Jesus to love, the cross to carry, and the poor to take care of. Gosh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> she said, I'm home. This is it. Yeah. See, but the, the thing is, like, you, we can't preach like that, and parishes can't hear that unless... So that's truth. That's, the, that's like the quote-unquote hard truth. Um, unless Jesus actually is there. <clears throat> or, or, like, we, we also have to... Ha live in the reality that Christ is present there. So you can't have one without the other. Mm. And I, and so if, if we're not being conformed to him, then we're just talking about like the hard, 
the hard miseries of life without the joy of rebirth in Christ. And, and so, and I think that's where, where sometimes when people get up and they're like, yeah, man, that's preaching the hard truth right there. But it's like, wow, something sounded really angry and like a bit callous about it. (laughs) Right. And, or it's like, man, okay, people aren't able to receive this at the parish, or maybe I'm not even able to preach it because all I feel, all I think and feel when I say this is like, I'm still mad at the Lord because there is a suffering that I'm acknowledging that like, I don't know the joy of his presence in that suffering. And so I don't know, is this something that I can say truthfully? Like Christ is in this suffering I know he is. I know he is. But it, can I live in the reality of the joy of it that not just makes it palatable, but makes it the fullness of the reality of the situation? And so if we have parishes that we preach this way, that they're also not being transformed in relationship with Christ, it makes no sense. It, it's not, it is actually not palatable. I don't think it's, it's, yeah, it's miserable. <laughs> I mean, Christianity without Jesus is miserable. Let's be like, <laughs> I don't know how else to say uh, that's that. That's well said. And then, and then, uh, yeah, like the the helpfulness of Christianity without the cross is simply that. It's just that's kind of helpful. Mm-hmm. That was somebody that that was language that my CPE supervisor introduced me to. Is something helpful or unhelpful? Mm. It's like, uh, does that matter? <laughs> right. I mean, is this like the goal? Is this the goal of the Christian life? Gosh, that's, that's so true, dude. It, I was, uh, so this event where Leah Labresco was, um, do you know that name, Leah Labresco? She's an atheist turned uh, Catholic, went to Yale. <laughs> She's like, she writes books and is the statistics professor, but she also writes for first things and things. Anyway, she was giving a presentation and talking about how when she converted, she came from an atheist household. All her friends growing up were atheists. She wasn't like a I hate God atheist. She was just, I don't think he exists. And um, I believe in stoicism and deontology and virtue theory. And that's what I believe in. And then like slowly through her relationships with other Christians, specifically Catholics, who were really smart and could address some of the problems um, and ultimately, like <clears throat> her question was, how do you ground objective morality? Because I acknowledge that there are things that are objectively good or bad. <clears throat> but if you don't have some objectively good, capital G, then you can't. And so it was a totally intellectual argument that got her to belief in God. And now she obviously has jumped in and experienced all the rest of it. But um, she said the one reaction she couldn't stand was when people were like, well, that's good. If that makes you happy, that's good. <laughs> She's like... Who cares if it makes me happy? I care if it's true. <laughs> it's like, that's so it, man. Like the modern arrogance of, well, if it's helpful for you, if that's what you need to believe to be happy, then good. That's <laughs> like, all utility. Exactly. I hate, no, I don't want it to be helpful. I want it to be true, you know, um, because then I can really trust it. And even when it's, not helpful or even when it seems like boy having to confront the truth of things about myself and the world instead of just papering it over and figuring out some way to move on and forget that and 
I mean, to, to really have the courage to go at your own story and your own life and your own suffering, um, try to get free of some addictions rather than just live in chains all the time. But that meaning that you have to go out to some deserts and let some idols get smashed. I mean, that's hard work, but if it's true, then it's worth it. Yeah. You know, and, and even more so like to, to maybe even maximize that claim even more is if it's true and leads to love. Yeah. Like that's, that's something that you can give your life to. Mm-hmm. It's so it has to be truth and love there. And, you know, of course we don't see any, any distinction between those things, but, um, yeah, I can die for love. I, well, maybe yeah, I, I try so. to. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. Um, so yeah. one thing, and then, um, maybe we can talk offline for a second, but, uh, so father Jamie, my, uh, roommate and, uh, fellow priest here in Chicago was on retreat a couple weeks ago down in Arizona, with father Eugene Floria at the hermitage. Mm. And, um, Met somebody down there from Springfield Diocese, and they, Father Mark Tracy. Shout out! What, what's his name? Father Mark Tracy. Father Mark Tracy. So he's talking, to Father Mark, and uh, you came up, and Jamie said, "Oh yeah, uh, the priest I live with, the Father, Father Connor, he podcasts with Father Rob," and he goes, "Oh, you're Father Jamie from the podcast," <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Because I've mentioned him maybe like a couple times offhand in some stories. <laughs> the, the idea that he's Father Jamie from the podcast. <laughs> he's never been on. That's, just, That's it, man. It's really That's funny. It. So shout out to Father Mark. Now Father, yeah, Father Mark, now you're Father Mark from the podcast. <laughs> now he's from the podcast. Yeah. All you got to do yeah. is get your name on here and now you're from it. Father Mark. <laughs> yeah. He's my boy. He's a great, great guy. But he's become a fan of the podcast as of late. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Johnny completely. Wow. So it's never too late. It's well, never too late. there is uh, also, I just want to say, there t-shirt things should be coming. It's slow going. There's a couple moving parts here. But hopefully by next episode, maybe next week or sometime soon, there will be t-shirts. So, Yes. Excellent. I can't wait to see these, man. They're gonna be- I also have one shout out, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so the podcast bold moves for real life you can check it out on apple podcasts and elsewhere uh i don't wherever other podcasts can be found which i don't know because i don't understand podcasting (laughs) (laughs) but just generally wherever you find podcasts bold moves for real life is a group of three freshman ladies from siue they're doing a great job with it and i was a guest on their podcast two weeks ago i think nice so you can check out that episode. Give them a listen because they're doing great work. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, Sister Caroline, dude, Caroline, she is she is the best. She is the best. Is the she best. Is totally the best, man. I I think her full is her full religious name, Sister Mary Caroline or Marie Caroline. It's not Caroline. It's Carolyn. Because Caroline. People- her it's name Carolyn. is oh, usually Carolyn's love it when you call him Caroline. But I think she took or like <laughs> that name is actually from like Carol Voitiwa is where that name. Yeah. Is from. 
Oh, totally, totally. Oh, uh, this is Sister Carolyn. I met at Seek. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She oh. was actually last night, she was the guest on Bold Moves for Real Life as well. No way. I can't believe I haven't been asked to be on Bold Moves yet. <laughs> aren't you Don't under- make this about you, Connor. <laughs> aren't you under contract until like 2020, though, to only be on Three Dogs North? That's true. But it's yeah. almost 2020. Yeah, it's almost a new decade. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Whoa. I kind of felt yeah. like the last decade wasn't even a decade. The zeros or whatever you call it. Now people are calling it the 2000s. Ugh. It never felt like a decade, but now I guess it is because people talk about music from the early 2000s or Whoa, jeans dude. and stuff. I'm like, oh, that's that's all the stuff that I think is cool, and now it's all old people stuff. Yeah, you probably wear dad jeans. <laughs> I also, do. I have I'm realized just realizing I have dad jeans. our guest Zion here. Zion, <laughs> sit down. Seriously, I just we're almost done, bro. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was probably born in 2000. Mm-hmm. No doubt. He was, that is crazy. Blink twice if you were born in 2000. <laughs> what does three blinks mean? <laughs> Blink 182? You wouldn't even know what that is. You're too young. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's that's a sign. We got to wrap it up. Wrap it up. <clears throat> Do-do-do-do. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.